I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where what? Uh, I don't even know what I say anymore. Uh, religious institutions meet Jesus face to face. Why am I so flustered? I had the pleasure of meeting two wonderful people tonight. Uh, Mark emailed me and said, hey, I'm my wife and I, we're going to take a little short drive. Uh, we're coming from Australia. We're going to be in Vegas. And we want to drive up to just say hello. That, that's an eight-hour drive. He lied to his wife. He told her it was only about a four-hour drive. So he essentially doubled it. But anyway, he didn't lie to her. They, they have a great relationship. We had dinner together. They're from Brisbane, Australia, and love the Lord, have wonderful stories, and uh, such an honor to meet Mark and Stacy. And thank you for being on the show. Anything you'd like to share with the audience? Good eye, mate. Good eye, mate, he says. And he's a Kiwi. She's the true Aussie. All right, we love you guys. Thanks for being on. All right, thanks, my brother. All right, that is, you know, two weeks ago, I think we had uh, uh, Arthur and Christopher from Spain. So as people come through, it's really a blessing to meet uh, different believers, uh, family in the body of Christ, friends from all over, and we're grateful that uh, they take the time to stop in and see us. All right, the Christmas special, this is the last week. Did I say Christmas? The special, this is the last week. You get four CDs, one, two, three, four, and they are full of the word, verse by verse, the word put to music, so you can learn the scripture by them. And then we have, I was the born again Mormon, Shield of Faith, written by Brandon Peterson. If my king were of this world, then my servants would fight. And uh, uh, where Mormonism be meets biblical Christianity face to face, all yours for the low price of $52 uh, and plus shipping and handling, which I think is about $8, right, Eric? Four to six, something like that. So, uh, and then we will also send you our next book that's coming out, um, and that is um, uh, Giving God a Chance to Make Sense, uh, Volume One. So uh, we hope that you'll take advantage of those if you want, and if you don't, fine and dandy, on we go. We are still covering eternal punishment and everything that people say about eternal punishment and what the scripture says. Tonight is part five, next week part six, and we're going to end it with part six. So let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we, uh, <clears throat> we thank you for um, life And we're grateful to be able to talk 
that we can freely um, express ourselves. We pray that there will be love and understanding. I'm going to be wrong, and other people listening are going to be wrong, and we're going to be right in places. But we pray that we can open up discussions so that we can grow together and learn and uh, try to learn to love each other better in this world. And uh, in your son's name, we pray for this, Lord. We thank you for our volunteers and the staff and people who devote so much time to seeing the program uh, off. And we pray for those who are lonely at this time of year, who are suffering and struggling. We pray that your spirit will be upon them, Lord. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I... Part 5, Eternal Punishment. Admittedly, if anyone can seriously consider themselves a Bible-believing Christian, they have to openly admit that hell and the lake of fire are biblical realities. We can't get around that. We can't get away from that. To be honest, I get personally kind of incensed when otherwise sound and astute Bible teachers or scholars suggest that hell doesn't exist because it's so not biblical to suggest that. I'm not doing that at all. Again, at the same time, it seems just as egregious uh, of a mistake when believers at the opposite end of the spectrum, so we have some who say there is no hell at all, and then we have believers who take hell and they describe it in terms that are not biblical too. So both errors occur when individuals decide, probably out of good intention, to kind of interject their opinion or their tradition into the subject rather than study it out and see what the Bible really says and limit their observations to that. So in the face of these two polarized tendencies, the topics of hell and the lake of fire, they sort of find themselves, the way Christians see that topic, lake of fire, hell, there's kind of two polarized camps of how we see it. On the one end, there are people, pastors included, who say God is loving and he would never, ever allow children or people or humans to go through such a thing. And then on the other end, we have people who not only accept hell as a reality and lake of fire as a reality, uh, they describe them in terms that are far more based on the traditions of Augustine and other men and women than on the sound biblical exegesis. So before we try to reasonably examine what the Bible says about hell and the lake of fire, there's something that needs to be plainly articulated. You ready? Like it or not, the lake of fire, hell, afterlife discipline are not places you want to go. They're not places you want to go. Now, I say this because as I've talked about the concept of total reconciliation, that God reconciles all people to him eventually, I have, I have believers who, in all seriousness, well, if hell and the afterlife punishments are not eternal, what's the point of being a Christian now? And I'm not kidding. Their attitude, it's usually like, I mean, why don't we just live like we want right now? And, and then I'll die, and I'll go to hell for a little while, maybe a little trip to the lake of fire, and then God will ultimately reconcile me to himself along with everybody else. Everything will be fine, and I'll wind up in the same place as, the, as, as ardent Christians. I can't tell you how many good Christians have made this comment to me time and time again 
And I, I really find myself astonished, truly. I mean, don't Christians experience joy in this life by being a Christian? Is everything predicated on the future and, and what's going to happen? And, and, and don't they rejoice in the relationship they have with God here and the blessings that you have of knowing the living God while you're alive here? If it is, what causes them to say this kind of stuff? I, what's the deal when they say, why don't I just do what I want? I hear that sometimes from, from believers. Well, if hell gives up its dead, why don't I just do what I want? My question is, aren't you doing what you want now? I, I don't get it. It's like you are fighting your desire to go out, eat, drink, and be merry and party all night as a Christian and you're doing this in hopes of you getting eternal life and everybody else burning forever in hell. I don't understand that mindset. The response is almost like them saying, I hate being a Christian, and I either want everyone who isn't to suffer eternally and never get to be with God, or I want to sin like it's no tomorrow, and ultimately I get to go to God too. It seems to be one or the other. Additionally, one of the main reasons Jesus came and did what he did was to actually save us from a trip to hell on the lake of fire. How come we don't see the incomprehensible gift this awesome blessing is in our lives here to know that when we pass, we won't go through the thing that was created for Satan and his angels? Why do we have to have hell last forever for everyone else in order for our salvation to be appreciated now? How come it must be an eternal thing in order for us to be, believe that God loves, loves us supremely and is grateful that we've trusted in his son? Finally, don't these Christians realize that there is an enormous, there's an almost incomprehensible difference between those who love the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth and have accepted him and become sons and daughters and joint heirs compared to those who reject him and they die and they go to hell and to the lake of fire if that's in the, in the lineup for them. Don't you see there's a vast eternal difference for those two? So I got to tell you, when believers from pastors on down play hell and the lake of fire in these ways, all it says to me is they don't comprehend the value of being a Christian in this life, the value of having Christ now, the loss and trauma experienced by those who do go to hell, they don't seem to understand what that loss consists of, and the promise God has extended to those who come to him by faith here in this life. They, that seems to be undervalued. It's really hard to see their reactions in any of the light. So let's talk about hell and the lake of fire using the Bible as our guide while rejecting the traditions of men. First of all, they're completely different places. Okay, got to understand that. Lake of fire, hell, not the same place. One thing almost all of us do, myself included, because it's just easy, is to refer to hell as the catchphrase place of where everyone goes after this life and stays forever and ever and ever who's been bad or hasn't received Jesus. While all do not go to heaven will certainly go to hell, it's a mistake to suggest that they will remain there forever and that while they were there, they are literally being tortured by flames. 
I would suggest that is a mistake. And let me try and prove it through the Bible. If you go back to the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament word that was always used for hell is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, transliterated into the English. And it's defined as a covered place. It's defined as a holding place. Okay, those two things. In Scripture, the Jews translated Sheol as the grave, the pit, a place for both evil and good people. Old Testament, everybody who died went to Sheol, which is translated hell. Everybody. Did you know that? So in essence, Sheol, the covered holding tank, the realm of the unknown, where all souls go after death, happened until Christ came and did his finished work. Because it was the def destination for all people prior to Christ and his finished work, it contained a place for the wicked, and Sheol had a, an apartment building, so to speak, for the righteous. Sheol, hell, had two places, good and bad. While the Old Testament translators frequently referred to hell in their work, it is important to remember that it was a covered two-part holding tank for all disembodied spirits. Abraham, father of faith, went to hell. David, after he died, went to hell. He said in Psalms, I know that God won't leave my soul in hell. He said that. Hell being that two-place, either paradise or the prison part. In the New Testament, the word Sheol in the Hebrew has its equivalent in several different Greek terms. One is Hades. It's hotter than Hades in here. That is, that, is the, that is an equivalent. Unfortunately, when we refer to Hades in English as hell, as in a place where there's literal flames of fire, uh, we, we forget that Hades, which is the equivalent for Sheol, is also a place where the good went. Hades is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament Sheol. And so it has a good place and a bad place. It's not the fireplace. That it's not the place of fire, okay? This is a general biblical history of Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New. Now there's another term that is used for hell in the New Testament. It's only used once. It's in 2 Peter 2.4. And it's called Tartarus, all right? And it's best described as a place of gloom, a pit of darkness, and it's considered to be the lower part of Hades, which has an upper part too, paradise. So the lower part is dark and gloomy. It is the pit, okay? We can see from descriptions of Tartarus that it is best associated with darkness, not the burning, all right? Remember this. Prior to Christ's victory, those in paradise and those in prison went to hell, went to Sheol or Hades and waited. At his ascension, Christ took paradise with him into heaven, but the prison part remains the holding tank, the dark place, the lower parts of Hades. That part remains the place for those who die faithless without Christ. Okay? Get these basics down and you have triumphed over most people when they just say, oh, you're going to hell or you're never going to get out and things like that. Just get it down, this stuff, all right? Unfortunately, there's one more word that's used frequently in the New Testament for hell. And it's um, in the King James. 
it is translated Gehenna. And this complicates matters. Part of the problem lies in the fact that Gehenna is an actual physical place in Jerusalem. All right? And it has a very sordid and reprehensible history. By the time Jesus was walking around on earth, Gehenna was a trash heap located in the southeast of Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom. Now, why this is important is because in Old Testament times, before Jesus came, they used to sacrifice babies and others to the god Molech in the valley of Hinnom where Gehenna is located. So it has a reprehensible history. Because of that, during Jesus' time, they used the Valley of Hinnom, where Gehenna is, as a trash heap. And they threw all their garbage into Gehenna, and it burned. They lit fires there to burn up the trash and refuse. Now, they also put dead animals there and, and, and dead bodies. So to a devout Jew, Gehenna, the actual place, was just reprehensible. They wanted nothing to do with it. All right? Jesus referred to Gehenna and the fires of Gehenna. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been berating the Pharisees, and he's on their back and the Temple Mount discussion, and he says in verse 33 of chapter 23, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape, this is what the King James says, the damnation of hell? Okay, you read that in the King James and you think, damnation of hell, okay? The problem with that is the translation from the Greek because the word here is not Tartarus and it's not Hades, it's Gehenna, not hell. The King James says, how can you escape the damnation of hell but the Greek word is Gehenna. Jesus is asking them, how are you going to escape the Gehenna that's at the southeast part of the Valley of Hinnom? How are you going to escape that? And where it says in the King James, how are you going to escape the damnation of Gehenna? Damnation's not even right. It's the judgment of Gehenna. Uh, the, the word's krino, and that's what it says there. Not damnation of hell as the King James translates it. It says, how are you going to escape the judgment of Gehenna? So, how, what was this judgment of Gehenna? When Jerusalem was invaded by Rome and totally sacked at 70 AD, over a million Jews were killed. They had gathered there for their festivals demanded by the law. Romans came in and they slaughtered them. And many of them were thrown over the walls of Jerusalem, over the Temple Mount and everything else, into the Valley of Gehenna. And that's all Jesus was telling them. How are you going to escape the judgment of this place? And that's where their bodies were thrown. He prophesied it. It has nothing to do with hell. And Gehenna is used all through the New Testament, but translated as the future place of hell. What else has been misunderstood about hell by well-meaning but altogether zealous believers in the king? Well, we know from Scripture that hell is located below. We know that from, a, from what Scripture says. Uh, possibly the center of the earth. The heart of the earth is what Scripture says. Because of this, we often associate it with heat. Because certainly at the center of the earth, they say it's as hot as the sun. 
So uh, apparently, because the heart of the earth seems to be the center, it's going to be a very hot place. Now, how spirits feel heat, I don't know. But we often assign hell with heat. In the end, however, I would suggest that Jesus gives a better graphic of what hell is all about. And let me teach it to you. It's delivered in a conversation Jesus is having with the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 12, 38. This is what it says. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we want a sign from you. And Jesus said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, that's a mistranslation, it should be fish, so shall the Son of Man be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which is where we get the idea that hell is hot because it's in the center. Why was Jesus three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Peter tells us that he was visiting the spirits in Sheol, in Hades. Right here, this Socratic dialogue with the Pharisees, Jesus compares his visit when he dies and lays in the tomb, his visit to the heart of the earth to Jonah, who was three days in the heart of the great fish. So let's look at this because I would suggest to you the Lord provides us with a tremendous picture of what hell is like. A tremendous picture. Just listen. We know from the Old Testament narrative that Jonah, whom Jesus assigns to himself as a type, he made a visit for three days and three nights somewhere, don't we? Uh, this is the sign of Jonah that Jesus speaks of. But it wasn't to the center or the heart of the earth. Instead, it was into the belly of a great fish, Jonah 1.17. I would suggest in this parallel, we have a tremendous picture for ourselves to describe what it's like for people if they die without Christ having rejected him and go to that place. In other words, being in the belly of a great fish is the best picture we have in Scripture for what it's like to go to hell. And forget Augustine, forget all the other stuff. This is the best picture we have. With just a bit of reflection, we can see that Jonah went through utter terror. It was horrible, okay? Unlike the storybook picture of Pinocchio, who's sitting on a raft, I always used to look at that picture book, and he's sitting inside of a whale. There's all kinds of room. He's laughing it up with a cat. There's a fire burning. He's just having a great old time, Pinocchio, right? He's inside of it. Well, it's not like that at all. First of all, we're talking about being inside the belly of a great fish. Think about this. It would not be spacious at all. It would not be lit. It would not be comfortable. And best put, it would be hell. First, it was darkness beyond compare. Um, perhaps one of the darkest places around, especially at night, and especially if the fish was underwater. We are talking pitch black, which would have probably been most of the time. No light whatsoever. I grew up by the beach. My brother and I used to go out to the end of the Huntington Beach Pier and swim to the Newport Beach Pier at night. And you want a terrifying pitch black experience, you go down at night, out, out past the waves, under the ocean, and you open your eyes. You are in pitch black, soundless pitch black, okay? Perhaps one of the darkest places around. 
It is not plant, uh, by chance that the darkness is frequently found in the biblical descriptions of hell as well. Additionally, while there had to be room for Jonah to breathe, the interior had to have been cramped. Um, not a big vacuous hall, but a tight, squishy, extremely unsettled, probably impossible to find footing or a resting place or anything to go along with that because you don't have seats in a fish's stomach. So you're sitting on a gushy, sticky, twisted kind of experience. And it would have been rank. It would have been uber smelly. It would have stank of horrible things. And this is a great description that mimics descriptions of hell because the uh, Bible says hell has walls. So we know Jonah inside the belly had walls. We know that no light exists. It says no light exists in hell. That's what makes it part, partly hell. And we know that sulfuric smells are described uh, and associated with the lake of fire. So maybe there's a parallel there to the smelliness of it. Also, the belly of a great fish is uh, 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 supposed to be very hot. So we might have a parallel there. There's four biblical parallels to the fish and to Jesus in the heart of the earth. Dark, biblical, hot, biblical, close, biblical, smelly, biblical. However, perhaps the most uh, significant parallel is that of it being a bottomless pit. Scripture describes hell as a bottomless pit. Now, how do we, what does that mean? Try to imagine that we can bore a hole straight through the earth. Okay, and we can go, let's say right, right here where I'm standing, we could bore a hole straight through the earth. It's impossible. And if we go straight through the core and come out on the other side in Osaka, Japan, okay, let's just say that's what is possible. If someone were to do that and I was to jump into that hole, I would fall without, I would go about a mile in, in literal terms and be destroyed by the heat. But let's just say I didn't. I would fall and fall and fall and fall until I came to the Japan side and I would come out of that feet first, right? That's if the earth was in a vacuum. I had no resistance. I'd go straight through. I'd jump in feet first here, but I'd come out in Japan feet first. That's not what happens in reality. What happens in reality is if I could survive that, I would jump in. I would fall, 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 fall all the way towards. And right before I got to the surface, I would slow and stop and I'd start falling the other way. And I'd start coming back to this end. And then I'd start falling the other way. And it would shorten up until I got to the center where I would just spin, spin, spin and have absolutely no ground or footing whatsoever. That would be a bottomless pit. And if you think about it, Jonah in the whale, up and down, darkness, smelly, hot, swimming under the sea, no footing or bound. I can't imagine something that is more symbolic than that. And picturing for us what hell would look like. So, can you imagine being inside that? Could you imagine the pressure as a fish dives to deep depths? Uh, fish don't have uh, pressurized stomachs. Can you imagine the pressure of what must be uh, in the center of the earth? That's hell. We don't want to go there. He came to save us from it. So just because I believe that God Almighty will ultimately reconcile all people to himself, this ought to have no bearing on the horrors that hell represents, a place nobody wants to visit even for a minute. Okay, I hope that is clearly stated. Uh, but hell is a very different place than the lake of fire. In Revelation 20:14, we read that the keys of hell will actually be cast into the lake of fire. 
Naturally, it's all very spiritual language, but from this alone, we can see that hell is a very different place from the lake of fire. In fact, if you turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, we read that it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, listen, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, Hell delivered up the dead which was in them, and every man was judged according to his works. So if we really want to argue the point for um, where unbelievers go after this life, we could say that first they go to a dark, smelly, foul, bottomless pit, and then after some time they come out and they're judged. That's what scripture says according to their works. And some will then be cast into what is called the lake of fire, which we're going to cover next week. But they are not the same place. Get this straight so we can get our facts straight when we talk with each other. Now, before we can talk about the lake of fire, I have to point out something maybe you haven't considered. But I want to ask you this. As a Bible-believing Christian, you have to agree that hell gives up its dead. Okay? And it says that the dead stand before the great white throne and are judged and the books are open and another book is open, which is the Lamb's book of life to see whose names are written in the books. And if your name is not written in the book, you are then cast into this other place called the lake of fire. So we know this is what it says, Revelation, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This, the lake of fire, is the second death and whosoever that came out of hell was not found written in the book of life, was cast into this lake of fire. Got that? So the question I have is this. We know hell gives up its dead, and the former inhabitants of it stand before the great white throne to be judged, and we know that the books are opened to see if their names are written in there, and if their names aren't, they are cast into the lake. My question is, why would someone who has been in hell name ever be found in the Lamb's book of life? Have you ever asked yourself that? They've been in hell, they're brought out, they're judged, and it looks to see, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? At this point, many believers say, well, no, no name would be written in the Lamb's book of life. Then, then why are they opening it and checking it? What's the point? What's the whole purpose? What's the... In, in John 8, 51, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, if a man keeps my saying, he shall never see death. Now, we know all of us die, whether we're believers or not, physically. So Jesus was not talking about physical death there. He's talking about something else. He's talking about the second death. That is where people get cast into the lake of fire. They experience what is called the second death. He says, whosoever keeps my same, which is to believe in love, will never see death, will never see the second death. Okay? So the death he's speaking about is this lake of fire. So here's the question of the day. Drum roll. You ready? When scripture speaks of a person being saved, does this mean they will be saved from hell and the lake of fire? Or does it just be refer to being saved from the lake of fire, which scripture calls the second death? That's the question I have for you. When scripture says we're saved, does it mean we're saved from hell and the lake of fire? Is it possible that people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are not saved from hell, but they are saved from the second death? Another way to ask it, is it possible for someone who believes in Jesus along their life some way or another to go to hell 
but upon being delivered out of it, discovers that their name actually is written in the Lamb's book of life and they have been saved and they don't perish and they don't experience the second death. In light of the standard evangelical doctrinal rhetoric, which says all a person needs to do is say Jesus' name and they are fine and dandy, how could I suggest such a thing? Here's how. If hell is going to deliver up its contents or its people to a great white throne judgment, and some of those people will discover their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, those people either, while they were in hell, cried out to Jesus, and their names were written in the Lamb's book of life, which supports my idea of reconciliation, or they were written in that before, and they go to hell because they were the type of Christian that Jesus describes in several places through the New Testament. Let me give you an example. Matthew 7, 21, 23, Jesus says, Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils and done many wonderful works? And he'll profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So people are saying, Lord, Lord, Jesus seems to intimate there all over the place. He's going to say, I don't know who you are. Only those people who do the will of the Father, which is what? Believe on the Son and love each other. That's what it says. Okay, how about in Matthew 22, 9 through 14, Jesus tells us a story of a king who throws a party, a wedding party for his son. The first guests are the house of Israel. Come to the party. House of Israel says no. So this is what it says. The king says to the servants, Go you therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So the servants went into the highways and gathered together as many as all they found, both good and bad. And the wedding was furnished with guests. They were led into the party. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on the wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how camest thou hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What does that parable mean? They, they were invited into the wedding party. He was in the kingdom, just like the, the marriage of the son, he was there. But the, suddenly the king says, wait a minute, how come you're not dressed up? Could both the bad that are found in the potential guests of the king's celebration represent those, some of those who go to hell after this life, but whose names are actually written in the Lamb's book of life? Could those who are found unchanged, wearing their street clothing and not the proper wedding attire, be some of those who are subject to the terrors of hell before they are freely given entrance into, the, into heaven because their na name was written? What does Jesus mean when he talks about branches that are in him, the vine, which means they are a part of him, they've grown out of him, being cut off and taken away and burned. What does he mean when he talks about those things? I want to know. How is it possible that they were once tapped into him as the vine growing, but then they're cut off because they don't produce fruits of love, by the way, and are bundled together and burned? What is Jesus talking about? That certainly doesn't sound like the just say Jesus and you're okay type of doctrine. All through the parables and teachings of Jesus, he clearly teaches that there are sheep and goats among us. There's wheat, there are tares, there's good soil, there's bad. In John 15, he is emphatic of the necessity of always abiding in him and bearing fruit of love constantly because there's a danger of being cut off and cast away if you don't. Is it possible that those who have actually had the Jesus experience, literally, 
and believed and trusted in him for a time, but drifted and maybe lived according to the flesh or their own will or were filled with pride or didn't love, that they might suffer the darkness of hell, but escape, be saved from the lake of fire and the second death. Do we really know what Peter meant when he wrote in 1 Timothy 1, I charge to commit you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's talking about previous believers. What does this have to talk about? Do we know what it means in Corinthians chapter 5, when, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul says, uh, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do we know what that means? Do we know what Jesus meant when he called Paul to serve him? And he told them that his job was to open their people's eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Is it possible that the call Jesus put on Paul's life, telling him what he was going to do, continues on beyond this life? Could it possibly continue on? Does it ever say it doesn't continue on beyond this life? That, 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 that the God's constant call of love is to open people's eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Same words Jesus gave to Paul. I don't see anything in Scripture that suggests otherwise. Christianity, especially since early 19th century, especially in the United States, has played big time on come forward, confess, and you are fine. Go on. Don't worry about it. But Scripture seems to suggest that more is expected not to save yourself. You are saved. But to abide in the vine. That is clear in all these uh, pictures. So, I wonder about this message, not because I think for a New York minute that we need to do anything to save ourselves. I don't at all. But because Scripture makes it clear that true faith is manifested and proven and followed up by true love, which comes by remaining tapped in the vine. What happens to those who were Christ, who shared His name, who had His Spirit, who followed Him and detached from the vine and were cut off like branches? Do they, do, they, do they go or are they still saved? I would suggest they're still saved, but from the lake of fire. Also, can you imagine the joy that somebody coming out of hell who was a reprobate Christian would uh, discover when they go to the great white throne and they find out that their name actually is written in the Lamb's book of life, that his grace truly did save them and that what they were going through was to purge or get rid of or uh, destroy the stuff within them that they let consume them when they were in this life. I can't figure out any other reason for those who have been in hell to have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life other than at one time they believed or while they are in hell, they cried out and God said, I, you, your name is written, come on out. In either case, I would suggest that we are witnessing God reconciling people after this life seeing that some who have experienced hell saved for, are saved from the lake of fire. Next week, we're going to cover the lake of fire, the Greek words for eternal, for everlasting, etc., etc., and wrap the whole subject up.
we have is hell eternal or is it a temporary state of souls until a redeemer is acknowledged as savior i think that temporary state of souls is the catholic view of purgatory um and i don't i'm not i don't hell uh i don't believe is eternal because hell gives up her dead and hell is cast into the lake of fire so i don't think it's eternal and I'm not sure it's a temporary state of souls until the Redeemer is acknowledged as Savior. I think the Redeemer could not be acknowledged at all. Hell will give up its dead. People will be judged. It's the lake of fire that we want to know is whether it's eternal or not. And we'll get to that next week. So thanks for that off-air question. Let's take a look at this and come back to some emails and your calls. 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and those up by going to www.hotm.tv and uh, to some emails. If you're calling 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. This is from Denny M. He says, I have been studying recently about the Mormons and the Bible. I ran across Heart of the Matter on YouTube. I always read, uh, I always read up a little to get some background on new preachers to me on the internet. My question, there are some that say Sean is a modalist or doesn't believe the Trinity is eternal. I have not heard anything like that from the videos I've seen watching him. However, I haven't watched all of them yet, so I'm going to ask him directly. Uh, seems the simplest thing to do. So what's the stance? Okay. Uh, first of all, let me say it's irrelevant to me uh, what anyone believes in the terms of Godhead and Godhood and Trinity or modalism because we don't know. We try to figure it out. Wars have been waged. Lives have been lost. Uh, we, we know God is one. We know Jesus was God in the flesh. And we know the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. We know the Father spoke to Him who is God. We know that the three are there. No dispute that whatsoever. But I do believe God is one. 
My problem is, in a couple places, just to reiterate. One, we are dealing with Latter-day Saints in the state of Utah who have long assassinated uh, Christianity. And Trinity is one of the problems. We have also, in response to the Latter-day Saints, criticized them for so many non-biblical stances and doctrines that they have. The term Trinity is a non-biblical term. I'm not going to embrace it. Bite the wall. I'm not going to embrace the term. I don't care how many good men or evil men brought it together. I don't care. Trinity, God did not say, worship the Trinity in the Bible. The word is not there. He didn't use it. Now, are there words to describe the fact that the Holy Spirit was God speaking in the Spirit to us? Yes. Are there words in the Bible that says Jesus is God in the flesh? Yes. Are there words that say the Father is God? Yes. Are there words that say there is one God? Yes. All that, yes, I agree to. Modalism. What mo traditional Sabellianist modalism teaches is that God the Father became the Son, and the Son said, I have to leave for the Holy Ghost to come. He leaves, and then the Holy Ghost comes. The Son became the Holy Ghost. That's called true modalism. I am not a modalist. What I am, this is what disturbs people. If you don't like it, that's okay. I'll die and go before God, and I will say, this is how I saw you. I see God as one. I see him as a fire. I see that fire manifesting himself as the Son in flesh. And I see the Holy Spirit as a fire coming and filling the hearts of men. Uh, that in, in, in some theologians' minds, that's modalism. If that's what modalism is, non-Sibelianist modalism, then that's, I'm guilty. My problem is Trinitarian creed actually says, as explained to me, that the Father and the Son had a relationship before anything was created that is like a father and a son here on earth. I do not believe that. I'm sorry, I believe that God's word was made flesh. I believe that God's word was made flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, God in the flesh. So eternal sonship is out of the picture for me. Nowhere does the Old Testament talk about a son and a father. We don't have that construct. I don't embrace that, okay? In terms of an Old Testament pre-creation concept. The other problem is it says, there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons or beings, meaning the Father and the Son who had a relationship before creation are like fathers and sons here. And a third, the Holy Spirit, a separate being, a separate person. The only difference between Trinitarianism and Joseph Smith's idea of the Godhead is the fact that Joseph Smith said God has a body. It, the, the other ideas are all there. I reject both notions. I suggest that God is one. And when you see the Father, you're seeing God. When you see the Son, you're seeing God. When you see the Holy Spirit, you're seeing God. And I don't believe in the persons. I believe that it's God. God. All places, God, okay? And I back that up by the fact that Paul, Peter, John, Jude, uh, Judas, not Iscariot, all, when they wrote in their introductions to their epistles, thanked God the Father and the Son and never mentioned the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit was a being, I believe the Holy Spirit would have been mentioned in those gratitudes and those platitudes at the early parts. They're not. He's not. It's not. So I don't, that, that's part of my, my substance. Okay, so uh, there's your answer, Denny. We have Christina from Mesa, Arizona, on line one. And someone on two, 
Christina, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I finally got up and I to call you. Oh, I'm glad you did. I try to become Mormon for about 10 years, and it luckily just never quite worked out for me, and I discovered your show, and I uh, took your advice a couple years ago, started taking my girls to a Christian church, learned so much, but I just have so many questions, I thought I'd start with just a few, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so I know... I don't know. The Trinity is very confusing to me, and that's not really what I'm trying to understand. But from what I've learned, um, you know, God, Jesus is the incarnate self of God, and he refers to himself, or it's called Jesus. But I guess my question is, after this life, does Jesus then become God like he was originally, or now are they still separate? And, because, you know, there's referred to the joint heirs, and, you know, this was my son, and it's a great, my father. It's a great question, Christina. All I can do is use the scripture to suggest what the future holds for Jesus. Now, remember, God so loved the world, he sent uh, his only begotten son, and he took on a body of flesh and bone. That was a demotion from uh, being the word of God that formed all things. And, but put it to you this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that at, at the end, Jesus actually, Hebrews talks about this too, steps from the right hand of the Father so that God may be all in all. That's what it says. So whether Jesus, I don't know what that means. We don't, he never tells us what happens to his body. I would, I would believe that Jesus, uh, Spirit Jesus, what was in his flesh was pure fire. And I believe to take that fire and put it back with the Father and, and the Holy Spirit's fire all to be one is all the same fire. So that's how I kind of see it. And I don't think I can articulate it any better than that, Christina. Oh, no, that's awesome. Thank you. What else? Um, okay. Um, Tell them no. Like I said, I was investigating Mormonism for quite some time. Um, is it possible, I mean, I, I, I completely get what you say, I've watched most of your shows, I'm right with you on most everything that you say, but I'm just wondering, have you, is it even possible that it's, just because there used to be the law of Moses, now there's the law of grace, and you know, that it does change from time to time, mm-hmm. so is it possible that it's changed for a certain type of people, or a certain... You know, it's a, your question is excellent because we could, if I was an LDS apologist and I was going uh, to combat with Sean McCraney, I would say, look it, you say that everything was done with Christ at the cross. Well, who's Paul? You know, Paul says he was visited by God and he suddenly had a vision and he was writing all this. So if Paul did that, why wouldn't God continue to call people? Why wouldn't he continue to call people like Joseph Smith, etc.? So that would be my argument as a Mormon uh, uh, apologist. Okay, but here's the problem with that argument. The Bible clearly states that it's all complete and it's completed because of Jesus' finished work 
and those who the law of Moses and all the ordinances and covenants were nailed to the cross. So the reason Mormonism is false is because it has taken those ordinances and covenants and laws and it's put them back up. And that is a false gospel. So if, if Mormonism was an extension of biblical Christianity and only enhanced what the Bible said, I could agree with that argument. I would say, wow, you know, they just do a better job than we've been doing. But they add stuff back in that is certainly Old Testament. And that's why I would suggest it could not possibly be trusted. And contrary to on top yeah, of that. Yeah, contrary okay. to. Awesome. Well, again, I love you. You're awesome. Love you, too. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. You take care. You, too. Bye, Christina. Bye. There's my awesomeness right there. Woo! Jackass of the asses. Okay, let's go to John in Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I called in and talked to you a little bit about, about the word hell in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm really, really following you right down the line on pretty much everything that you've been talking about. I've been watching every show. But the word hell is actually manufactured and put in there and is not. I mean, you're taking the word Sheol and going to Hades from Hebrew to Greek and, and turning it into hell, which is not the interpretation. Yeah. And, and they did this during the uh, Dark Ages, basically, to scare people with this hellfire burning thing. As not only did they... Uh, talk about a future state, they even put you on a rack and also burned you at the stake and yeah, did other things like that during the Dark Ages. Yeah, they did. But, so uh, what I'm trying to get at here is there is the difference between universal salvation and total reconciliation. There's two big different differences here. Yes. Uh, universal salvation is you're going to be saved and because there is no hell and you're not going to be accountable for anything. You're going to go to the same place everybody else goes, and that's it. But right. that's not what total reconciliation is, which you've been explaining on the show very clearly. Now, I wish to just take the word hell completely out and put the original translation into English off of Hades, Sheol, and all that, and we would see that it's basically a grave or a pit. Yeah. Basically. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews, here's an example. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, did God stand there to them and tell them, because you sinned and gone against me, and I'm going to throw you in a pit of fire and burn you? Mm. Looks like he would have warned his first children that that was what was going to happen to them. No, what was their punishment? Their punishment was, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow and be accountable. And the wife is going to have to have child, pain and childbearing, because you're immortal now. You're going to have to go through this life and experience these things. And really, the really critical scripture that ties this stuff together is in, I think, Zechariah, when it talks about Jesus, when he re comes back and he takes and purifies the sons of Levi, these are priests now, mind you, and he purifies them like a refiner in a refiner's fire, and he, and he gets the pureness out of them. And, yeah. and this is what I believe is the, the, the fire is talking about, about hell. Is a refiner's part. We reap what we sow until we have been purified and accept Jesus and come through all that and stay with Him. John, I love your heart and I love your information. You've clarified some things uh, for me and for the audience. And, uh, you know, it's a beautiful message, isn't it? It's very yes, different. Yes, it is. It's a beautiful message for all people. We should all extend our hands to all of our children and neighbors and everybody and quit condemning people to something that does not exist. And 
and, and explain to them that we reap what we sow, and God is out there wanting to take us in and give us all his love, and so we can become loving like he is and go on with our lives and live spiritually. Amen, my brother. I love it. Thank you so much for watching and calling. Okay, I'm sure I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the shows, man. Talk okay. to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, I left my Bible somewhere. I wanted to, uh, I don't know if I can read it in this. This is the, uh, I think this is the Geneva. And it's in, yeah, it's the 1560 actual Geneva Bible. And uh, it's in Old English. But uh, it says here, And all things are of God, which hath reconciled us to him by Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. For God was in Christ, and reconciled the world to himself. That's what it says. And that word world there is cosmos. It's not the local area. It's the entire universe. He reconciled, it says again, for Christ, for God was in Christ and reconciled the world to himself. I did not come up with and start embracing reconciliationism because of that verse. I actually ran across that verse just last week and was stunned that the word reconciliation is even in the Bible, and it is. And he reconciled things to himself. If we start changing this, our gospel message is far better than the one that we've been throwing down and making people um, embrace. We are such a high-tech show here. That usually happens automated but uh, I had to do it manually that time. Uh, from, Priscilla jo from Priscilla, she says, Sean, you made a comment about uh, Mormons embracing evangelical Christianity and bashing you. I agree completely. My husband and I left the Mormon church only three years ago and are not impressed with the modern churches. I am pasting excerpts from an email I sent to a friend about my frustrations. And she goes on to talk about how there's degrees of corruptions in all man-made church churches. And uh, that we need to focus on the teachings, on the love, on the salvation Christ gives. We focus on his message of salvation. We focus on him and him alone. We abide in that vine. We do not abide in church circles and in cliques. Yes, they can be helpful. Yes, they can be socially beneficial to us to keep us a little bit unspotted from the world when we hang out with like-minded believers. That's fine. I get all that. But it cannot become a stopgap measure and become the intermediary between us and God. There is one mediator, and that is Christ Jesus. There is no church. There is no pastor. He has no authority, none at all. There is no pastor that has authority to somehow bridge the gap between you and God. It is all between you and him. And he sends his Holy Spirit. He sent his son to reconcile us, the world to him. And he sends the Holy Spirit that is drawing us to him. And it's saying, I love you. I want to save you from this thing that I did not want in the first place. Listen to the love. Listen to what he's saying. We don't have to have the church. I just had dinner with my Australian friends and we were talking about that. How it's the love. It is not the church. Men want the church to be in power. We establish certain uh, strictures and certain uh, commandments and certain orders and certain styles and certain everything so that we can kind of capitalize on it and make it our niche. And there's no niche here in Christ Jesus. It is for the bond and free, the male, the female, the black, the white, the gray, the yellow, the female. It's for everybody. There is no 
hierarchy of priesthood here. There's no priest. That's why, did you know the word priest is never used in the New Testament towards somebody except for it being a priesthood of believers? That means men and women alike. There's no priests and bishops and reverends that made up title. Come on, you guys, go to God. Say, I want a relationship with you. I want it to be you and I. I don't want anybody getting in the way. You open my eyes. I'll follow you when you open my eyes. I want to follow you. Tell me, show me. Open your Bible, read it. See what God has to say. And you'll discover a relationship of liberty where you are free from the shackles of religion, from their demands upon your money and your time and your allegiance, and you walk with him and you, when you're free, let me tell you something, you know how to love. When you become free, you learn about loving and only then. When you're not, your love is kind of held in bonds and chains. Stay with us next week. We're going to wrap up the year. Next year is going to be exciting. We'll talk to you about that. And we're going to cover the last part of eternal punishment. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good job, audience. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know I can feel the light-filled monkey start